They didn't let me see him and that was probably because I was pregnant. Um, my brother explained to me later how he did it. They said he uh, pointed the gun to his forehead and pulled the trigger with his toe. Um, I needed to hear that and I needed to know everything about it. Um, sometimes I regret I didn't see him. I saw him in the coffin when he was uh, done up from the funeral parlour and I'm glad about that. She was supposed to get up and um, go to bed and she didn't and she just um, put a gun to her head and she shot herself dead. I knew the one that I was going to employ was one that was going to be very final. I did look out the window and say, no, that's not for me if I just broke a leg or my spine worse and landed uh, um, immobilised in, in a bed. I wouldn't do that, no. It had to be something that I was very definite I was going to succeed in. Jumping off a bridge would be no good to me because I can swim and I know my innate sense of wanting to stay alive would make me swim. You can't drown yourself if you can swim, I think. But certainly... Um, for me, it would have been um, something nice and calm and peaceful where you just went into a deep sleep and went out of it. A certain number of them do try it again. And very occasionally, some people who try it again and again and again will, in my view, accidentally kill themselves in the end. They my feeling is that they don't really mean to kill themselves but uh, very occasionally they do people who are bereaved by suicide I think are more aware that they may not be understood by other people um, you know that is it normal for somebody to feel cross to feel let down by somebody who's died. You know, you're meant to be feeling, what a, isn't it awful for the person who's died? And what they may be feeling is, how dare, how dare they do it? How dare they leave us in this mess? You know, I mean, we have to see to the funeral. We have to talk to the teachers in school about this. Um, we have to, you know, there's no, there's no life assurance policy now. Um, what do we do? And they've left us in this mess. To be or not to be? The question that plagued Hamlet's mind is obviously still bothering people, and recent reported figures suggest that about 400 people in the 26 counties went so far as to actually kill themselves last year. Now, why would people do that? What makes some people attempt it? Are they any different from the rest of us? These are questions we put to Dr Michael Kelleher, Clinical Director of St Anne's Hospital in Cork, former Senior Lecturer in Psychiatry at London University and Visiting Professor at Heidelberg University. Well, the motives to end one's life are very varied and they vary between the sexes and they vary between the age groups. Obviously, the commonest association with suicide is despair, loss of hope, usually associated with depression. 
However, it may also be associated with other medical conditions, alcoholism being the next most common, but also illnesses such as schizophrenia and also personality disorders. People often do not realise that depression and suicidal ideation can also be associated with severe physical pain, particularly where it occurs in association with cancer or some other life-threatening situation. But outside of illnesses, a person may also have other motivations. Sometimes a person may act out of anger. He feels so angry with the system so angry with his life circumstances that he turns this in upon himself and ends his life. Sometimes this anger may be directed towards close relatives. Also, people who are very critical of themselves and see themselves as failures can act aggressively towards themselves. Now, is there a genetic tendency in some people to go along that path? Well, I think one must say that there is a family tendency for some, by far the minority of people, but certainly uh, suicide, unfortunately, may occur several times within the same family across generations. Now, the reasons for this can be broadly of two sorts. One is associated with identification, that the uh, person who subsequently takes his life is very much identified with the person who previously did so. And this may have been a factor in the suicide by gunshot of Ernest Hemingway, whose father also took his life at roughly the same age, as did an older brother. For these, there may be an inherited disorder of a particular chemical within the nervous system called serotonin. Now, it is not absolutely certain that this is so, except painstaking research indicates that those who act aggressively towards themselves often have a slight diminution of this compound within their nervous system. So also, by the way, do people who may act aggressively towards others. And therefore, the fall in the substance serotonin may be something that leads a person, man or woman, to act aggressively, whether to the self or to the other, uh, rather than being something directly associated with suicide itself. Um, my name is Jean, and um, my husband committed suicide. Um, at the time, we were seven years married, and we had three girls, aged six, five, and three. And I was three months pregnant on my fourth child. Parik... Uh, suffered for about two weeks beforehand I would say, about two weeks beforehand he um, was manager of a public house and 
he had difficulties at work. Money was going missing and he felt very responsible and also felt the finger was being pointed at him. He uh, got it into his head that he was going to lose his job and this is what he told me. He felt um, on that he was going to lose his job the following week. There was going to be a board meeting and he really believed that he was going to lose his job. So this had um, a bad effect on him and he got very upset and listless and agitated. And I suggested that he talk to my father, who was a publican. But, like most men, I suppose, he uh, didn't want to talk to anybody and he wanted to sort it out himself. So, the day he died, he uh, took the car out to do some shopping for me and he crashed the car. He crashed into a bus. And... um, he was brought into hospital but later discharged so I uh, went in and took him home and he went to bed and I got the, our local family doctor and he said he's a bit shocked he said and I leave him some sleeping tablets so that evening I had to go out and do some shopping when I came home the bedroom door was locked and I realised there was something wrong so I actually thought that he took the sleeping tablets that were left for him I uh, put the children to bed and I tried to figure out what I would do so I rang the local police and they came up and burst in the door and he was dead on the floor he had shot himself with um, a rifle that he owned which he had for his hobby, which was shooting. Um, the note on the note there was just three lines, very short, three lines, and it wasn't his usual writing. It was very big writing. And the, th- the three lines said, "I'm sorry, darling Jean. I've always loved you. Pray for me." I do believe he is. The crash, the car crash, didn't have a, a bearing on it. Lots of people would think it had and that it was the shock. But I think he had decided to do it and he did it. There was another um, thing that makes me believe that and that was that he was reading a book before he died and I didn't read the book for two years late, two years after, but I read it and it gave in the book graphic detail of a suicide and he copied it exactly the same. It was Something Happened, was the name of it, by Joseph Heller. An end to the heartache for the one that's gone. And for everyone who commits the act of suicide, there are many others who seem to attempt it by self-inflicted injury or deliberate acute self-administration of a drug or poison with the conscious intention of causing or risking death or bodily harm. 
Dr. Patrick Plunkett is consultant in accident and emergency medicine at St. James's Hospital in Dublin, and he has made a study of patients who have been admitted as a result of self-inflicted injury and self-poisoning. 278 patients in one year, more than half of them female. Well, we tend not to um, think too much in terms of suicide initially. We look on it all as deliberate self-harm because um, suicide is in many instances not what these people are aiming to do. They are trying to do something to alter their life circumstances but not necessarily to kill themselves. Our initial input into their management is actually to try and make sure they don't die accidentally from blood loss or from poisoning or things like that. So our initial input is to stop any further harm, to help them get physically better. Our secondary input is to try and figure out what has caused all this. And that we try and do by talking to the patients, by getting the history from them as to what's gone on. This can take some time, obviously, and, and a lot of the patients we would admit to hospital, some we don't. Um, it can require specialised intervention, so we often have them seen by a psychiatrist, in fact, almost invariable. And we increasingly have them seen by social workers because it looks like many of the, the problems which cause people to, to harm themselves have a basis in their uh, lifestyle or their, their life problems outside in the community. What are the common means used by parasuicide patients to injure themselves? I suppose the most common is, in fact, self-poisoning, um, usually with prescribed tablets, antidepressants or um, benzodiazepines along the lines of, of Valium or its, its uh, relatives, uh, but also including alcohol and also including over-the-counter drugs such as paracetamol, which is a real killer, and people don't realise that. That's one of our biggest worries. Um, from physical injury point of view, it tends to be people cutting their wrists or occasionally their throats. Uh, or very occasionally throwing themselves off a high building or in front of a bus or something like that. Now, when you deal with these patients afterwards, do they have regrets that they inflicted these injuries on themselves? In my experience, very few actually regret having inflicted it on themselves. Some of them regret having been found, although, again, not very many, um, some regret that we've intervened. Some regret that they've caused problems to their family, but the vast majority of them, it, it doesn't seem to impinge on their consciousness so much. Unfortunately, the outcome in suicide is more often determined by the methods used rather than the conviction of the intention involved. If a person takes an overdose, there is always the possibility that he will be found, that he will be taken to a hospital, that he will be resuscitated there, 
and that he will recover and most of these people are very glad to recover and to take up the traces of life again. If, on the other hand, the person chose a method from which there is little likelihood of return, such as hanging, then, regrettably, his life will end. It is well shown that most people who take their lives are ambivalent about it. That is, they're not absolutely convinced they wish to take their lives right up to the last minute. And it's often the accident of the methods chosen that determines the outcome. Some years ago, paraquat was a method often used in this country, but it's not used so frequently now, is it? Well, it wouldn't be used frequently in Dublin because there wouldn't be the common access to it. It is in rural areas, uh, not a very common, but still a common method used, and regrettably a very sad method. I say that because the person does not die immediately, but within a matter of usually about five to eight days. They're often very well aware of what is happening. They're sitting up in bed. They regret what they have done, and they know that they are awaiting death. And death is usually from lung congestion or liver failure. And as I said, it is a very sad situation because these people, and I personally have known of two, greatly regret what they have done, and yet neither they nor the doctors or nurses can put the clock back. found out he was going out and he was drinking very, very heavy. And I was left in the house on my own a lot with the children. And then it was when he'd come home, you know, I used to sit and brood what had happened, what he'd do to me and what he'd, you know, he'd call me violent names and really hurt me. And I just felt, I felt on several, you know, several occasions, I just didn't, I didn't want to live. You know, I really wanted to take something. I was on very strong tablets at this stage, but I think my head was a little bit screwed on because I didn't take these heavy tablets. But this particular day, that, you know, he was out drinking, we had to be fighting, and he was saying, wait till I come back, I'm packing my clothes and I'll finish you off, you know. And I decided then I bought a box of aspirin and took them all. As I said, you know, nothing happened in the way of killing me, but they made me very, you know, very sick and headaches. But I didn't, like, do anything to upset him. He went out the next morning drinking and just left me there to cope with the children. You know, I left a very important letter, like, saying why I was doing it and explaining him that, you know, I didn't do it because I was insane. I just did it because I was so depressed. You know, when he'd go out on these drinking boots and leave me, and then when he'd come back, what I had to face, you know, for nothing at all, because I didn't go out drinking. Um... Well, I, I did passively, like, think, will I jump onto the next bus, as I've now discovered a lot of people do, and that's meant to be called passive suicide, uh, where it's not really active. But I always knew that I would use um, a method that wouldn't be too violent. I would like it to be nice and easy. And uh, there did come a time uh, in my life back in 86 where um, I did plan... Uh, to commit suicide and um, it was with medication and I had it a very well worked out plan but um, 
my GP intervened uh, at that point and I really feel she saved my life and to this day I thank her for it uh, because she got me into hospital. It was a weekend that I was at work and um, I was to do something on, on the Monday that meant not a lot to me and I was very upset, uh, uptight about it and worried about it. And my mood, of course, I forgot to mention that I suffered with manic depression and in 86 I had by that stage been diagnosed with manic depression. So my mood would have been fluctuating quite a lot, especially if, if, thing, if I was about to do something. And so I thought I'd lost my job and lost my... Um, my house and I, uh, I, I planned then and there what I would do and it was a very neat plan and I didn't intend to die alone. I was going to go to a friend having taken a lot of medication and wait until I became sleepy and then tell the person that I was, uh, that I, what I had done but um, I w was going to request them not to do anything until I had become unconscious and at that stage uh, I thought that it would be over for me. But um, my GP had asked me to ring her to, to, to tell her what uh, what had happened the night before. And when I did ring her, I must have mentioned that I was definitely going to do it now. I'll, and she she just said um, she thought I needed to go into hospital. And that is what started the ball rolling in, in me getting proper help. Mary Allen is a senior social worker at St. James's Hospital and in that capacity she delves into the background of patients who have harmed themselves by inflicting injury or self-poisoning. Very often the patients would have very, very low self-esteem. Patients who deliberately harm themselves would, uh, as a profile, be people with low self-esteem and much of our work would be to help them to, to believe in themselves and give them enough confidence to try and get even a part-time job or to take part in community activities, make friends with other people, get involved in a group or, or a support group, um, that they would have links with other people rather than being confined to the pressures within their own home. Now sometimes then would these self-inflicted injuries be alcohol-related in any way? Quite often they would be. Um, either the, the person themselves um, would be uh, addicted to alcohol or gambling or uh, illicit drugs or they may in fact be living with somebody, either a child or a spouse, who would be addicted. Um, and this, this again is an area that um, a social worker would have quite a, a, a lot of involvement in, in working with the um, person who lives with an addict um, because people who live with addicts tend um, to be very guilty, to feel responsible for the actions of the addict and um, helping them to disentangle the web of guilt and anxiety and worry and responsibility that they find themselves in would be one of the tasks we would do in counselling such a patient. Now you mentioned their sexual abuse. I mean, how does that work out in practice? Who is the victim usually? In our experience, it would be usually uh, women, um, perhaps uh, women in their 20s or 30s who would never have spoken about it. It's much more common nowadays, but we forget that even five or ten years ago, um, child sexual abuse was an unknown entity. Um, and we quite often meet people in the hospital who would have been abused 20, 30 years ago and who would never have told anybody, who would maybe have developed other difficulties in their lives and would have worried quietly and silently and secretly about this abuse all their lives. And then that, together with perhaps uh, a, a new worry, a new stress like unemployment or bereavement, would simply um, push them um, into 
deliberately harming themselves because there is a close relationship between deliberate self-harm and people who were sexually abused as children. Um, again, in talking to them, hopefully they would trust us enough to be able to tell us that this was part of their worry and we would then begin treatment with them or refer them for ongoing treatment. There is a, um, a close connection between um, deliberate harm and the possibility of sexual abuse in childhood. It is one thing that we would, as social workers, we would look for. We would look for the, um, the, the symptoms and signs of that. Now, very often, people are not ready to tell us, and it may be at a later admission for something else that they may tell us, or they may uh, go home and think about it and maybe go to another agency and talk about it. Um, they, people don't always tell us all that bothers them, but we give them the opportunity to tell us. That is one of our functions, is to provide them with a safe... Um, confidential environment in which they can talk about all of their worries. There would be some patients uh, that one would know that one had uh, dealt with in the past and uh, um, sometime later would have succeeded in, in committing suicide. In my experience, that has tended to be more older people, people um, 60 and over. Um, attempts, attempted suicide or deliberate self-harm amongst the older age group is something that must be taken very seriously as it very often is, in fact, a failed suicide rather than um, simply an attempt or um, a, um, an infliction of, of injury. It is a quite serious attempt and must be seen as such, and every effort must be made to assist the person to deal with whatever the issues were that um, that they feel that they, they want to end their lives. Very often it is related to bereavement, the loss of a spouse that they have lived with for perhaps 45 or 50 years, um, and they feel they can't go on living without this person. Joan Cronin is also a senior social worker at St James's Hospital in Dublin and she has made a study too of the parasuicide admissions for the catchment area on the south and southeast of the city, including in Shikhor, Rathmines, Talla, Clondalkin, Ballyfermot and Palmerstown. But when patients leave hospital, they often return to the same set of circumstances. I would agree completely with you and I think whilst counselling can facilitate somebody to look at the issues that are going on in their life around the time that the act of deliberate self-harm has taken place. I think that counselling has only got a very, very small input into uh, attempted suicide. Uh, from our study, we found that um, most of our patients came from socially and economically very deprived areas of Dublin. And it could be said, and this may be rather radical, that their uh, attempted suicide was a political statement um, and I think that it has to be looked at from a political dimension and from a socioeconomic dimension. Um, I think that if you ask a patient just to focus on their interpersonal problems without giving any recognition to the social deprivation that they're living in, that in ways that reinforces the self-blame that they have and can actually reinforce their own sense of isolation. Um, if somebody has had very little access to support services, to education, um, to employment, um, their only way of actually addressing their awful deprivation may be by actually attempting to injure themselves. And I think that this needs to be looked at by social policymakers, by our politicians, and also looked at very clearly by therapists when they come along and just offer purely therapy to patients um, who are obviously telling us something completely different. The parasuicide patient now who comes into the hospital deals with a medical system and a social system with which he or she is 
familiar. How is he or she able to relate to that, these systems? Firstly, I would say that probably the patient isn't familiar with the either, say, the social, system, social work system or with the medical system or in some of the patients I would see who would be battered women whom we would refer on to the legal system. Um, I think it is very difficult for these patients dealing with these systems a lot of the time because I think the value judgments that we have within, say, the social work system, the medical system or the legal system may be totally different than those of our patients. I think we also have to remember that these professions tend to be very middle-class professions and that it is very easy uh, for us to have aspirations for um, our, our patients and our clients that they should be able to cope with life's, you know, interpersonal problems. Um, many of the patients that come in um, have given the reason that for not coping and for attempting suicide that they were having interpersonal difficulties. However, I think if we look beyond these interpersonal difficulties, we will see that the problems basically were lack of finances, overcrowding, poor housing conditions. And obviously, if you live in um, a two-bedroom house with five children and you're having difficulties in meeting your uh, rent, then you're obviously going to have interpersonal problems. Suicide always carried a stigma, and traditionally it was taboo for a Christian. It created unique problems for grieving relatives, including isolation, guilt, secrecy and denial. Imogen O'Connor is a sociologist who has made an in-depth study of bereavement by suicide. Because suicide in the past was seen as such a shameful thing, and, you know, it was a sin in the church, and it was a, it's, it's still a crime, attempted suicide. Um, and it just goes against all our values about man as being sort of life-seeking and, and, and God-loving. Um, now, the church is more, much more lenient now, although I think that the tradition is, or the culture, still we still hang on to the fact that there is something wrong. Um, so, I, you know, I think that with talking about it, and I, I think that... While it's changing, I would imagine, and from the group that, that I would have um, been involved with, they actually felt that if they had gone to an ordinary bereavement group or talked to an ordinary counsellor, that they might not be understood, that they felt that it was, you know, that it was such a peculiar form of death and, and they imagined that nobody else would have felt the same way. So it, the relief of meeting with other people who had similar experiences was enormous. And I think there are two aspects to that, certainly that have affected me and that I've seen other people suffering from too. And, and the first one, I suppose, is the sense of awkwardness around it. That not only can you feel kind of... Or, I mean, I can certainly remember feeling awkward with, with having the whole subject brought up. Um, there's a sort of a sense that if, you were to, if somebody asks you, oh, how did, how did they die? Um, you, might, you might be afraid for that other person that they just might be so shocked that they wouldn't be able to deal with it. And I certainly think that... And equally, the other person, maybe knowing that it's a suicide, may try and avoid the subject. And I've heard of cases where, really, it's as if the person never died at all. Um, we sort of skirt around the issue because it becomes so awkward. Now, from your experience in working with groups and from your thesis, do you think that there's a greater stigma attached to suicide and to the relatives of the person who committed suicide in the country as compared with the city? I think so. Um, 
And, and partly that's because everybody knows everybody else. And there is much more of a sense... You, you can't be invisible if you're living in a, a small community. And the gossip, again, is much more virulent in, 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 in local rural communities. I think in the city you can be anonymous. Um, and I think that that can actually, I suppose stop people from maybe looking for help because they may be afraid of other more vulnerable family members that they may feel fine about looking for help or even about talking on this radio program but they may be aware of other family members who may be much more susceptible or fearful of what other people might think There were about 75 suicides a year in the 26 counties in 1970. Today, there are about 400. Changes in social attitudes may be a determining factor. Increase in crime, alcoholism and illegitimacy, as well as a fall in the marriage rate, are thought to be indicators. Such changes in other countries, as in Ireland, are accompanied by a rise in suicide. Unemployment and the threat of unemployment touched the individual and his family. And in one study in Cork, Dr Kelleher found that two-thirds of men of employable age were unemployed at the time they took their lives. But suicide is not confined to the disadvantaged. In fact, the highest rates of suicide are probably amongst the very well-off and the comparatively poor now, it's likely that in between, those who have a lower rate in the middle range of classes, so to speak, also are integrated into the wider society through occupation and through other means. Those at the end of the scale have a higher rate because they never got a chance. And perhaps those at the very top of the social scale are a feat or perhaps do not get the same pleasure out of the ordinary hustle and bustle of daily living. Young people too can fall prey to the pressures of parents and an educational system where achieving is more important than being. My parents had been very strict with me and wouldn't let me kind of mix with the locals. And uh, they were trying to kind of shape me into being the perfect lady, so to speak. And I, I kind of started to rebel in my teenager years and then I get comments thrown at me as to, like, why aren't you like Mrs So-and-so's daughter down the road or why can't you be like uh, Joe Soap's daughter? Look at the way she's uh, studying and... Uh, you know, she doesn't be hanging around with the people you hang around with. And I think I really felt, well, you know, I'll make them sorry. And that then I saw suicide as a punishment. And I used even to fantasise about the funeral and I could see them all crying and being so sorry that they'd ever put me down or that they'd ever not loved me for what I was or that they wouldn't let me be what I wanted to be. And... The one time that stands out in my mind was um, well at that at that time there was we all suicide was very glamour was had been glamorised 
in our school and we all knew that if you took coke and aspirins together that this was the way to do it but I'd heard about somebody who had done that and they had uh, to be brought into hospital to have their stomach pumped out so I thought that I that this didn't sound very nice and I didn't think I'd like that um, which really probably shows that I never really meant to die I suppose it really just was a way of showing them and making them sorry and punishing them but the one time that I, the farthest I ever took it in those days was when I had thought of many ways, decided against the coke and aspirins and had decided that I would take one of these super star heaters into my bedroom. And I thought, now, if I turned on the gas, that eventually I would fall asleep and that I wouldn't feel anything. So I remember doing this, um, lying down on the bed, turn, had turned on the gas, and it would have been after maybe only a minute or two, as soon as I smelled the gas, I think reality hit me and I suppose I realised I didn't want to punish them that much and that just maybe, I just might die. And uh, jumped up, turned off the gas, brought the superstar back to where I'd left it and uh, thank God I haven't taken it that far since. Feeling lonely or depressed or suicidal? Help and understanding are only a phone call away. So reads the ad of the Samaritans, that voluntary body that operates a 24-hour answering service in Dublin, Cork, Ennis, Galway, Limerick, Sligo, Tralee and Waterford. I think the major problem would be marital problems, which are the higher, higher. And after that, I'd say, would be loneliness, uh, sexual, uh, if you want to call it deviancy, but homosexuality, yeah, depression. But I think marital is the top of the list, I'd say, for I think women are a higher number of callers, but men also. But I think the women are more easy. They find it easier to ring rather than men, like, you know. Although men do come on with marital problems, like, you know. But a woman will come on, I think, a little faster than a man will. She's inclined to talk more freely. And she's inclined to look for help easier, I think. A man is inclined to try and solve his own problems, like, you know and doesn't think he needs anyone to listen to. When a person takes his own life, it's a personal statement, but it can also be a comment on his social environment, and for those bereaved by suicide, there can often be a period of great distress. Anger and frustration, as well as pain and sorrow, are mingled with loss, and the conflict of love and hate, mixed with sadness and guilt, are often the inheritance of the relatives, and that's why a special support group is so important, as Imogen O'Connor explains. I thought, and, and I think my co-facilitator, Phil, thought that in the beginning people would find it very difficult to talk about it. And in fact, they were straining at the leash to talk about what had happened. Um, and basically, they took the floor, you know, uh, and they would... Most of them would need to say over and over again the, uh, what happened leading up to the death, what was said, who said it, where they were, and what happened immediately afterwards. And that's something, I think, that we can't underestimate, the need for somebody to go over the events again, replay and replay until they talk it out. Um, and there's no... You can't give platitudes or you can't say, I oh, was well, sure it was for the best. You must let the person talk it through, talk out their fears that they may have contributed to the suicide or that they could have prevented it. And they will eventually come to their own understanding because there is no meaning for suicide, I think, in our society. It's totally inexplicable. She was supposed to get up and um, go to bed and she didn't. And she just um, 
put a gun to her head and she shot herself dead. I did actually feel I was totally responsible for a long time. Um, because I was there and I, she had confided in me in a lot. If I had the opportunity now to talk to my sister, I think I would listen and not butt in and say, oh, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? Because that's what I did, really, and just say, you know, let her talk and let her sit, try and sit in her chair for a half an hour and, and really listen. Jean, who endured the great trauma that followed the suicide of her husband when he shot himself, realised the value of counselling, and she has now set up her own support group for those bereaved by suicide. When I started soul-searching myself, I decided to get counselling, yes. And I got very good counselling. And at the moment, I'm a trainee counsellor myself in Northside Counselling Service Centre. And I have ongoing counselling there for myself. I, through that, I have started a group for suicide bereaved people. And we have that group now every second Thursday night in the Mission Hall in Abbey Street. They say there's no art to find the mind's construction in the face and it's difficult to know what goes on in the mind of someone about to commit suicide. But these were the feelings of Elizabeth during her planned final moments. I have to say, selfish though it may sound, you do not consider anybody else because you're, you're in there. You're caught. That particular time that I really thought I w was going to do it, I felt like an animal trapped in a cage and I just... I had to be, become free, and the only way I could think of becoming free was to end it all. And I didn't think of uh, the impact it might have on anybody. I now do. I now can sit up and uh, retrospectively think of the horror that I could have caused around me, including the friend that I intended to go and stay with until I, as I thought I was going to do, die. But I would never, <laughs> I would never, please God, ever want to do that again or even consider it. <laughs> 